welcome to episode 227 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Paradin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the fast attack submarine USS Indianapolis, Commodore of Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other assignments. How are you this morning, Bill? I'm doing well, Seth, and a little bit news of the week. Uh, this week, we it was announced that the Omni Bay um, escort carrier was um, discovered, actually it was discovered by the Petrol a few years ago, but um, it was discovered, it was finally identified, that was CVE-79 Casablanca class carrier. Of course, it was sunk in the Sulu Sea by a kamikaze, um, you know, back in 1945. So. You know, that's an incredible discovery, and we always like, oh, sorry, yeah, 1945, that's right, Seth, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we always like to highlight these things when news comes out during the week that we're broadcasting, so wanted to bring that to everybody's attention this week. Mm-hmm. These underwater discoveries, as we've said multiple times before, you know, they're they're valuable, they're important, you know, they're time capsules, and uh, they're fascinating to me, uh, utterly fascinating, and I know they are the same to you as well so and i don't think we're the only ones that are fascinated by underwater archaeology shall we say well before we get started uh we want to ask you as always uh to like and subscribe to our channel on youtube uh, as it helps others find our show we do want to continue to get and i've noticed that the subscriptions have ticked up uh significantly and and we thank you very very much to those who have subscribed and to those who haven't please do so Uh, it helps us out helps get this material out to other people who have not heard of our show yet. So uh, many, many thanks to those who have. And to those who haven't, please do hit that like and subscribe button. We would be very, very grateful. Now, if you listened to our episode last week, you know what we're building up to. Uh, We literally last week's episode was the build up to Operation Galvanic, the invasion of Batio or Tarawa, depending on how you want to term it. And uh, we're going to continue that story this week and next week. By the way, so years, quite actually decades worth of planning, preparation and experimentation had all led to this very moment right here. The great Central Pacific Drive, the spawn of Warplan Orange was on. The ships, big and small, were about to begin their bombardment. Uh, The Marines had already or were currently clamoring down cargo nets into landing craft. Some, those destined to be the first three waves of men ashore, were transferring from Higgins boats to LVTs at sea to make the initial run into shore, while others waited in tossing LCVPs and got progressively sicker as the morning dawn began to break. Uh, Aboard the battleship USS Maryland, 2nd Marine Division Commanding Officer General Julian Smith could only sit and watch as his men made their way to shore and the plotting landing craft. His only line of communication to the beachhead and his boys would be the old battleship's radio system. Saying a prayer, he could only hope for the best for his boys and trust in the men he had chosen to lead them ashore. Uh, Men like Colonel David Shoup, Major Jim Crow, and others like them would lead the charge. And while their leadership encouraged the young Marines, this battle, the battle for Batio, was going to be an infantryman's battle. This fight would be won or lost by the men who wielded the rifles, the BARs, the machine guns, the grenades, and in all too many cases, bayonets and K-bars. Most of the young men who waited to go to shore were confident, but they were also apprehensive. Many more were confident and at the same time absolutely terrified of what lay ahead. They had every right to be. 
The men of the 2nd Marine Division were about to wade into the most vicious and violent combat yet seen in the Pacific and maybe the entire war, both Europe and Pacific, to this point. The first day in the battle for Batio would be remembered as the day of utmost savagery. And Bill, I could not emphasize that anymore. And to those who are listening and or watching, you're going to understand why we say utmost savagery. And of course, that is a riff off of the book uh, of the same title, but it, it it truly is an accurate description for what's about to happen, isn't it? Yeah, it is, Seth. You know, this is a day where, you know, Murphy's Law comes into play. Things will fail at the worst possible moment, as Murphy's Law always dictates. Now, we said last week that the Tatarawa or Beishio, and, and, and let me just show folks why we keep jumping, bouncing back and forth between Tarawa. Tarawa's this entire atoll here. And of course, the place where the landing occurs is down here on the island of Beishio that's part of the Tarawa Atoll. And we said last week that this battle has implications for the entire war, not just for the Pacific War, because uh, we learned so, so many hard lessons on how to conduct and how not to conduct an amphibious operation that had implications in places like Anzio. Um, the, and, and of course, we have gone over this battle, you know, from a historical sense, multiple times, um, just from a study standpoint, and it never gets easier when you review the battle. It's so regrettable. It's so gut-wrenching. It's so, in many aspects, so unnecessary that every time you look at the video that, that Seth's going to show and every time you review the mistakes that were made, you, you think maybe it gets easier with time. It doesn't. It doesn't. You still get that, you know, not in the pit of your stomach when you know what's about to happen, Seth. And, you know, it starts at 0500 aboard the, the, the fleet, the ships that are supposed to be preparing the battlefield for the amphibious landing, Seth. It is. And, and you know, we, we talked about it in the last episode that, you know, this was supposed to be the greatest naval bombardment in history. And to be abundantly clear, it actually to this point, it was, but it was supposed to be a lot more um, sustained than it actually was. And we're going to get into that here in just a second. So to your point, Bill, exactly at 0500 Admiral Harry Hill. And if you will recall, he's the gentleman that's in charge of what is called the Southern Attack Force. He was assigned by Richmond Kelly Turner to lead this assault on Batio and to be the head banana for this fight that's about to uh, unfold. He orders Maryland's USS Maryland scout plane to be launched. Uh, as the scout begins to claw for altitude, uh, and spot the shells uh, when it does do this uh the japanese are actually the ones to open fire first you know you like to think that when we invade an island that the first shots are fired by the united states that is not the case here uh the japanese open fire on the maryland scout plane and and basically that sets off a tremendous <laughs> chain of events that unfolds after this that you know lasts for a whole 76 hours as we'll get into deep deep detail in all those hours here in just a little bit but um the after the japanese start to shoot at this uh this aircraft what actually happens is when the maryland launches her uh scout plane off the catapult there there's a 
a concussion. There's a there's a flash when when the when the Maryland launches this scout plane, and the Japanese believe that they're being fired upon, which of course they're about to be, and they actually open fire not only on the scout plane, but they open fire with their big eight inch coastal guns on the American fleet. So they start dropping shells in before we ever even kick off, don't they, Bill? Yeah, they do. And remember, these are the eight inch guns that you talked about last week. There's a misconception that's all over the internet that the Japanese captured these guns in Singapore or something like that. And and that's not true. The, they actually purchased these guns prior to the war. But these eight inch guns, these are cruiser sized guns on the on the beach that are specifically there to, to fire on ships. And that's what they're doing. They're they're uh, the gunnery officer, you know, as soon as they see the the, the, the splashes coming at them, uh, the gunnery officer aboard Maryland orders commence firing the wars on. And with those words, Maryland and Colorado's 16-inch 45 caliber rifles train on the target, the 8-inch Japanese gun that had just had, that had, just had fired um, on the American ships. They respond with three salvos apiece. The massive American shells scream overhead and plow directly into the Japanese position, silencing at least one of those 8-inch weapons permanently. Uh, and Seth, and you know, this battleship, you know, salvo that continues um they try to shift fire to the other eight inch guns on the island and they, they knock out three of the four of them with fairly accurate fire so the the fact that those guns are silenced really doesn't do much because it's not those guns they're going to be the bane of the existence of these marines that are trying to come ashore um the sheer concussion of the main batteries cutting loose the problem is that this, while those big 16-inch guns did silence the 8-inch guns ashore, the concussion that from those guns on the battleships ominously aboard Maryland caused radio communications from the Maryland to be lost. And why is that a problem that radio communications is lost on the Maryland, Seth? Well, General Julian Smith, the CEO of Second Marine Division, these are his guys that are making this assault, now has, at least for this for the time being, zero radio communication with his people that are going ashore. Um, he is and he doesn't realize this just yet, but his communicate he and Red Mike Edson are both board Maryland and their radio communications to Colonel Shoup, Major Crow, all these people that are getting ready to hit the beach are they're gone. There there are no more. Um, and this is not something that's actually uncommon, um, believe it or not. You know, I mean, we if you recall back when we talked about um, the battleship fight off Guadalcanal, you know, granted, there were significant things that caused South Dakota to lose power. But she also lost communications, too, from the concussion of her guns. So this is not something that's necessarily uncommon. And you can't really even say that, oh, maybe you could be prepared for this. But the fact that they didn't even realize that it had occurred. Until several mm-hmm. hours after the fact, you know, Julian Smith is sitting there going, why the hell am I not hearing from my people? Well, mm, you know, maybe you should check and see what's going on aboard your ship. And this causes some significant delays and reinforcements being sent to the island. This causes some significant issues in terms of the progression of the battle as it goes forward, as the, as we're about to see. But, you know. Yeah, shore bombardment uh, is 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 a very very tricky thing as we're about to learn as the Americans are about to learn. Uh, you know, just because we got a lot of guns and we got big shells and we're we're throwing a lot of lead into an island doesn't necessarily mean that everything aboard that island is dead. 
Um, it's quite far from the from the accurate truth, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, the battleships do kind of, as you were saying, they'll get into a duel, if you will, with these eight inch guns. And they do knock out three of the four, you know, in rapid succession. And that is a very, very accurate shooting because, I mean, these battle wagons are way offshore. They're not very close. I mean, they're way offshore. And after that, the fleet opens fire. And and it is it is an impressive sight, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the Marines watching this, even some of most of them were on the landing craft at this point, but some of them were still on the ships. They're cheering like a football game. Every time, you know, something ashore would explode. Fires are burning on Batio from one end to the other. Um, and one of the Marines says, as I watched the destruction, I couldn't help thinking, how could anyone live through that? Now, this is going to happen again and again through the war, right? Where these guys right. basically, the Japanese, you know, Iwo, these mining um, troops to dig tunnels as if they were mines, you know, and again, it, but this is really the first uh, time when this happens where uh, they're, they're dug in so significantly, so substantially that the Marines think this this may be a cakewalk. Nobody can live through that, right? In fact, the veteran reporter by the name of Robert Sherrod said of the bombardment, destroyers with many five-inch guns firing almost as fast as a machine gun. The sky at times was almost brighter than noontime on the equator. And remember, the bombardment started before the sun came up. Now, the Japanese uh, started this horrible war against a peace-loving people. They were beginning to suffer the consequences. And this is the way folks were thinking before this horrible rude awakening occurred, Seth. Yeah, you know, they had been told, they being the Marines, had been told that because of the sheer volume of fire that was going to be poured into Batio, that it was, they literally were told this, that it was highly unlikely that anybody would still be kicking when they landed ashore. And if they were, they were going to be so dazed and concussed that the Marines had just steamroll right over the front of them or over the top of them and, and and you know, just end this thing within, you know, just hours. And when the Marines are watching this just massive amount of fire, destroyers, light cruisers, heavy cruisers, battleships, later on air, uh, aircraft carrier aircraft come in there, you know, they truly believe that there is no way. I mean, Terra was small. We talked about this before. It's two miles long by 800 yards, plus or minus, wide. So, I mean, this is not a big place. And all this shell fire is being poured into this. And it went on and on and on and on without let up for a long time for several hours um and then suddenly it stopped and major uh, major admiral harry hill is the man that was in charge of the bombardment at this point um the shelling stopped after going on for about an hour stopped for a full 30 minutes and there was really there's a couple reasons as to why this happened one is that there was supposed to be an airstrike coming in and the shell fire was supposed to lift as the airplanes were going to come in and strafe and bomb and 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 do their thing and then the shell fire was going to pick back up. And that's all fine and dandy. But because of the fact that USS Maryland's communications were knocked out, Admiral Hill never received the information from the aircraft carriers that their inbound strike was actually 30 minutes late. So mm-hmm. this 30-minute respite that the Japanese were given here is the first of many Murphy's Law kind of you know issues that pop up on this day. And it gives the Japanese, who are suffering terribly underneath this naval bombardment it gives them time to regroup get their wounded out of there 
reposition people because it's abundantly clear where the Marines are going to land here because they're pouring fire in this one strip of sand. This one, these three actually landing beaches, red one, two, and three. So the Japanese are like, oh, they're coming here. So they start shifting people from all over the island that doesn't take very long because the place isn't very big to reinforce their defensive positions. So this 30-minute respite is going to come back and haunt the United States Marines who are about to land on shore. Uh, the Japanese, some of the Japanese survivors, of which there were very few, later said that the shelling kept them down, but when it stopped, it allowed them to position more people to appropriately repel the landings that were about to occur. So, Bill, 30 minutes after the shelling stops, aircraft from the carrier swoop in, drop bombs, strafe, and attacked anything they could see. The island was a fire again, and this is also a problem, is because the fires that are started by the shell fire by the American aircraft actually uh, cause the shell fire that follows to be inaccurate because the gunners can't, or not the gunners, but the uh, gunnery officers can't see the target anymore, right? Yeah. You know, it's pretty common whether it's artillery fire or naval gun fire. If, you know, when you know the initial rounds land, you know things go boom, and then uh, the, the people ashore think, okay, or the people on the receiving end think, okay, they're going to adjust fires. So that big crater that was just created by that artillery round or naval gunfire round, another round is probably not going to hit in that spot. So let me move there, right? And so there's a whole lot of adjustment that takes place in that 30 minutes between. It was not supposed to happen, right? The gun, naval gunfire was supposed to immediately transition into the air support missions from the carrier craft, and that 30-minute fire, uh, you know, Japanese were able to move into the craters that were created, assuming that they weren't going to strike the same position twice, and and they also adjusted their fields of fire for the beaches that they now know um, are going to be the targets of the Marine landings. You know, there's this Paul of grayish black burning smoke and and again even the pilots are saying surely no mortal men can live through this right um and and it just it just one thing after another that the you know was a, was the guard let down a little bit you know with the from the marine standpoint thinking that they're going to be the marines were lulled into passivity and most firmly believed that there were no japanese alive ashore these thoughts were crushed, though, when the Japanese began to shoot back at the ships once the bombardment ceased. It suddenly became clear to those who had thought that the bombardment had killed everyone that the Marines were going to have to go ashore and pry the Japanese out of the positions man by man and do what the big guns of the Navy could not. Now, remember, in defense of those who decided that the bombardment would be shorter than the Marines desired, was the fact that there was still real fear that the combined fleet was going to show up sometime during this bombardment, that they weren't far away. And then as soon as the bombardment stopped, they were going to reposition. And they and we didn't want the Marines to be killed when their ships were sunk. So the idea was we're going to we're going to do the, the the bombardment that we think we need, but not more than we think we need to get these Marines off the ship and get them ashore. Because everybody will be dead by then, right? And so, and they'll have right. a better chance of surviving ashore than they would on the ships if the ships come under submarine attack or something like that. So the Marines are now on their, you know, their, their Amtraks and their LCV uh, <clears throat> landing craft vehicle personnel, LCVPs and LVTs and things like that, and trying to get in. 
But there's a couple of destroyers that are lending a hand here too, aren't there, Seth? They There are. And, and these guys, uh, and we'll mention them specifically, uh, they play a huge part in not only the entire three days here at Tarot or two and a half, whatever you want to say, um, but specifically D-Day. And those two ships, and there's two minesweepers and two destroyers, um, they move in close to shore and prepare the area for the landing craft. And by close inshore, I'm talking hundreds of yards offshore within rifle range of the Japanese ashore. Uh, at 0620, it's the USS Ringold DD-500 and the USS Dashel DD-659. They hoist their battle colors and plow into Beishio's Lagoon. Now, they're trailing two minesweepers. These minesweepers um, are the Pursuit and the USS Requisite. Uh, they're in there to obviously sweep for mines, since the name Minesweeper. They're sweeping for mines, so the landing craft hopefully get in there and don't hit a mine. Um, they do sweep the the area. They do sweep a clear channel. There are no mines that they do detect, or if there are, there's there's no record of them anyway, I should say that. And then USS Ringold and USS Dash will get in the lagoon within full view of the Japanese. And I do mean full view to where the Japanese ashore, again, there's a handful of survivors of this of this event, say that they could see the American sailors, you know, clear as a bell uh, on, on the decks of these two destroyers. And these two destroyers wind up getting into a gun duel with some of the Japanese shore uh, fortifications. Um, once the minesweepers cleared the area, the Ringled and Dashel began to pump rounds into Beishio's defenses from as close as 1,000 yards from the beach. A Japanese gun opened fire and hit USS Ringled below the waterline, causing some minor flooding. Uh, the hole was plugged, but the destroyer never left station, continuing her fire the entire time. These two ships are going to play a vital role. They save hundreds of American lives on D-Day, and, and we're going to see here, and cause a major shift in what potentially could have occurred on D-Day night, and we'll get to that point. At 0715, at 0715, pursuit and requisite, the minesweepers are haul off and mark the line of departure for the landing craft. As the two minesweepers cleared the area, the first Amtraks come into view of the Japanese shore. Um, we talked at length last episode, Bill, about the Amtraks, about the LVTs, landing vehicle tanks. So we don't need to go into that here again. But these vehicles, just to remind viewers and listeners, these vehicles are, they comprise the first three uh, waves. Uh, they, they're the assault troops. They're, they're the first guys that are going to hit the shore here. And they are being counted on to cross Batio's reef. They, we know that there's a reef there. We assume that, you know, we assume at this point that we're going to be able to get over the reef with our Higgins boats. But regardless of that, whether we can or we can't, these LVTs are going to get across there. Um, Bill, how many guys, how many Amtraks are coming? How many guys are in this very first assault wave? Yeah, there's actually three waves in the first assault, 42 Amtraks in the first wave, which is in each of these Amtraks have about 20 men. Uh, these waves are separated by about 100 yards. So wave one comes ashore. Those Amtraks unload, pull off, wave two, 100 yards, you know, following, comes ashore. There are about 24 Amtraks in the second wave. And the third wave has additional 21 or so Amtraks. Then the next waves, four to 10, are actually these Higgin, Higgins boats. And remember, like we said last week, we believed that there was enough water over these reefs for the Higgins boats to clear the reefs. We knew that they would need at least four feet. The Higgins boats drew about four feet, 
And we thought that there was about a five feet of water depth over these reefs. And, and sadly, there was not. So it's 820. The Amtrak's reached the line of departure, made a sharp turn 90 degrees, uh, and then for the first time allowed the men inside their first glimpse of Basio. As the Amtraks drew closer, they drew fire. No surprise there, right? And the fire from the island was initially light and inaccurate, leaving those holding on hopes that most ashore were actually dead. But then at 0855, 15 minutes before the Marines were scheduled to land, as, as planned, Admiral Hill halted the bombardment because he didn't want to hit the Amtraks as they continued to turn closer. <clears throat> General Julian Smith argued that the firing should continue until the first Amtrak hit the beach. But Admiral Hill, remember the, the doctrine was that the Navy was in charge until the troops were ashore, and then the Marine Corps, shifted, the command shifted to the Marine Corps once the, sh- the, the troops were ashore. So that at this point, Admiral, um, you know, the Admiral is still in charge, Admiral Hill, and, and he says, nope. We're going to stop the bombardment. He was really afraid that some of his ships would would sink Amtraks with Marines in them. So the action gave the Japanese even more time to prep and get ready for the men slowly coming towards them, Seth. Yeah, and you know, to to pile on to what you were just saying there about Admiral Hill, when he when he orders cease fire or check fire, um, Julian Smith who's got Red Mike Edson standing next to him, they, you know, start arguing. Those like, no, keep it up, keep it up, keep it up. And and Hill's like, no, we're not going to do this. And apparently there's, there, it's not recorded exactly verbatim, but apparently Julian Smith kind of loses his mind on Admiral Hill, you know, broaches uh, military decorum there and basically has a fit of profanity. To which Hill basically just doesn't basically he just straight up ignores him because Julian Smith knows he's not stupid. He knows what's going to about to happen here. And the fact that the 15 minute break uh, gives the Japanese even more time to prepare. And again, you know, you're looking at a, a grand total of 45 minute lapse in fire here. And while that might not seem like a lot, it's tremendous amount of time. Again, referring to the size of the island, two miles long by 800 and some odd yards wide, guys can move quickly from one place to another. It, it, 45 minutes is an eternity when you have to haul ass and get into another fighting position. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what the Japanese do here. Um, as the Amtraks are reaching the reef, they just, bam, they slam into it. But what they do is exactly what they're designed to do. Those treads on those Amtraks grab a hold of that reef and plop these Amtraks right over into the lagoon. They do exactly what the Marine Corps had hoped that they would do here at Batio. The gamble on these the gamble on these specific vehicles thus far had paid off, and it was going to be that these Amtraks, all of them that actually made it to that point would indeed climb over that reef. So all that preparation, all that time, all that begging and literally thieving of the Amtraks off of the pier in San Diego, this is, you know, it's proving its worth right here. Uh, The goal of the Amtraks was to ignore the Japanese beach defenses and actually churn inland. They were supposed to hit the beach, advance a couple hundred yards in 
inland on Beishio and then drop their ramps and put their people basically behind what the Japanese defenses were thought to be. Um, when they would get in there, the Marines would then start knocking out the Japanese positions from behind. At least that was the initial plan. Um, the closer the tracks got to the shore, the heavier the fire became. Uh, machine gun fire now began to clang off the Amtraks. Men hunkered down even lower. It's starting to get real now, as they say, as the kids say. Um, there's a gentleman who we're going to hear a little bit about in this episode, and you're going to hear a lot about in next week's episode on day two and three of Tarawa, a gentleman by the name of William Dean Hawkins. Um, while the first wave was still some 1,500 yards offshore, an LCVP, a Higgins boat, containing scout snipers from the 2nd Marine Division, landed near the pier. Now, if you look at the map, if you look at a map of Tarawa, which I'll show right now, there's a very long pier that extends out into the ocean just beyond the reef. This is the pier that I'm going to refer to, or that we are going to refer to throughout these next couple of episodes, because there's a lot of fighting. There's a lot of stuff that goes on along this pier. Um, there, the pier kind of split, well, it doesn't kind of, it does split Red Beach 2 and Red Beach 3. It's the basically the demarcation line between those two beaches right here. Bill's got his cursor on it right now. Um, the, the young lieutenant by the name of William Dean Hawkins, who's in charge of these scout snipers here, his job was to scramble up the pier and eliminate anything in his path so as to free Red 3 and Red 2 from infiltrating fire at that pier. At 0855, just as the naval bombardment lifted in about five minutes or so before the uh, LVT start to hit the shore, Hawkins and five other Marines leapt from their landing craft and charged up the seaplane ramp, which is at the very end of the pier, and uh, made their way up the pier. As soon as he got ashore, this gentleman, whom they called Hawk, obviously because of his name Hawkins, uh, he killed four men as he ran up the pier. Uh, then he and his scout snipers, along with some engineers, moved up the pier, killing anything they ran across. Being the front man, he insisted on leading every single assault that he was ever in, this being the first. Um, he ran into men who were just as startled as he was. As he's running up this pier, now these Japanese had, now while they, as we said, the fire had lifted, the American shell fire had lifted, it still dazed a few of these guys, and especially these guys on the pier that had virtually no cover. These guys that are on the, Japanese that are on the pier are in sandbag emplacements. They're not in concrete bunkers. They're not in coconut log bunkers. So they are exposed to the shell fire. So these guys are kind of deaf and mute at this point from the shell fire. Uh, a hawk runs up on these guys and literally startles and scares the hell out of them and just kills them. Um, the fighting on the pier broke out as much of the fighting ashore on Beishio would. It broke out into this nasty, nasty hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, as Hawk and his scout snipers move up, they knock out at least six Japanese machine gun nests and killed at least 25 men before he had to order his men back to the reef. Uh he starts taking fire once the Japanese look over and they see these Americans, you know, running up this pier and just laying waste to Japanese on this pier. The machine gun nests that are on Red 2 and Red 3 or infiltrating fire onto the pier. And at this point, Hawkins realizes I'm a dead man. If I stay here, he turns around and beats feet and gets his people the hell off of that pier and brings them back to the reef. Hawkins is going to spend the rest of the day trying to get ashore. 
at this point. He's the first man ashore on Basio, and he actually doesn't get back on Basio until late that night because of what's about to unfold at Red 2 and Red 3 and the Reef. Bill, we're going to keep hitting these beach names all day long. Can you lay it out for us on that map that you got on the screen right now? Where is Red 1? Where's Red 2? Where's Red 3? Yes, sir, Seth. So this area here, down here, is, is Red 1. And Red 1 ends right in, in this bay here. Red 2 goes from that point to the pier you were referring to. And then Red 3 is everything east of that pier. So at Red 1 now, if we can shift a bit, Captain Wendell Crane and his men from K Company, 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, watched as the beach drew near. All of a sudden, he said, all hell bro broke loose. His Amtrak was getting hit from all sides. Now, you could understand why. I mean, you could almost get enfilade fire from both of these corners here, right? As these guys are approaching right down this line of axis, this axis right here. I'm going to get fire from both sides. And as Amtrak was getting hit from all sides, as he watched bodies begin, begin to slump and his men began to fall inside his track, the fire was intense. The Amtrak next to Crane exploded in a fiery flash with men being flung out of the vehicle as if they were dolls. Amidst this chaos, he called yelling, get the hell out, fast. His men scrambled over the sides of, of the boat, and most were cut down by vicious machine gun fire coming from both flanks. The devastating fire caused the following Amtraks, the ones astern of him, to veer westward to the, this, this way, to the right of Red One. These tracks ran directly into the camouflage Japanese on this coast here. Um, they had anti-boat guns there and had not been touched by the bombardment. The enemy guns began to pump round after round into the tracks as they lumbered ashore. And many, many never even made it to shore. The Amtraks began to collide with one another. No, doubt, no surprise there the, as the coxswains were trying to evade fire and amidst the chaos rapidly drawing most of the Japanese fire towards themselves, towards these areas of collision. Those who could got out as fast as they could and then found themselves literally in a beehive of gunfire. One Marine, John Leopold, said the tracers and bullets cracked through the air like pistol shots coming so fast, it was like popcorn. The tracers crisscrossed and the whole area was a pattern of thin red lines of flame from the tracers. We swore everyone on the beach was dead. We thought no one was alive. We couldn't see how they got in. I doubted that no more than 300 were still alive at that point of the landing party. The beach named Red One was red indeed with blood, Seth. Yeah, I mean, it, just look at that map like you just highlighted there, Bill. I mean, they're literally landing in enfilading fire, you know, and, and those anti-boat guns that you've got your marker on right there, right there. If you look at Basio, it's shaped like a bird, right? And that's the bird's beak at the bird's beak right there. These anti-boat guns are just, you know, they are just murdering these Amtraks as they're coming ashore because these vehicles had never been seen by these Japanese. And there were some at Bougainville, but 
very, very few. The Japanese had never seen these things before, and they're going to draw fire. I mean, they're they're amphibious tanks. They're drawing fire. And, you know, whether they got Marines in them or not, the Japanese are shooting the hell out of these things. And when you're landing in a bay that is surrounded on all sides except for behind you with machine gun fire, you are going to take some significant casualties. And Beach Red One, Red One is an absolute murder zone. I mean, the Japanese just waylay the Marines landing here. The LVTs are taking a pounding. And one Amtrak at Red One, three out of 25 men survived. An Amtrak called My Dolores, and there are photographs of this thing, uh, made it to the beach and hit the seawall. Now, this side of Batio where we're landing is, for the most part, there are some gaps in it, but for the most part, is surrounded by a coconut log seawall. Um, I mean, a seawall is a seawall is there to, you know, <laughs> push back the sea, hence the name. But the seawall is going to play an important role in this event for the next for the next twenty four hours for sure. And that little coconut log seawall is going to save a lot of marine lives. Trying to get over the seawall, the driver of my Dolores gunned the engine, but the vehicle stalled, its nose pointing straight in the sky, laying against the wall. As it stalled, Japanese machine gun bullets tore through the underbelly of the vehicle. One survivor, of which there weren't very many, at Red One later said, quote, at each step, I marveled at still being alive. And this is on the shore. This isn't even wading through the water. I mean, there were some guys who had to wade a couple, you know, maybe 25, 30 yards ashore. But for the most point, this is right at the water's edge where all this carnage is taking place just on Red One. Um, Major Michael Ryan of 3-2 said later that Red One was, quote, a kaleidoscope of destruction, flames from bodies draped, am flames from body draped Amtraks that blazed out of control surrounded me. Marines crawled out of the vehicles on fire and slowly died in the water they sought to extinguish their flames. It was an absolute nightmare, unquote. This is not shaping up, and this is only one of three landing beaches here, Bill. It, Red One is appropriately named, and it, the Japanese are just slaughtering the Marines as they're trying to get out of these Amtraks right here. You know, I said three out of 25 survived out of one Amtrak. Unfortunately, that was rather common. It wasn't that just, you know, this was, I picked that one to be, you know, uh, uh, to, to show how bad it was. I mean, there were guys, you know, who got out. They were the only survivor. There might have been two. There might have been 10. You know, some guys might have gotten lucky. Some guys certainly did get lucky. But for the most part, these guys are just getting slaughtered in this episode right here at Red One. Yeah. You know, and again, the these are the Amtraks. These are the vessels yeah. that can get ashore. We haven't even begun yeah. to start talking about the Higgins boats that, you know, we already, spoiler alert, you've hinted last week, are going to get hung up on the reef. But the initial radio message sent back to Colonel Shoup from Red One, Red One were discouraging is, is not a strong enough word, right? They said, have landed. And here's the understatement of the decade, of the, of the century maybe, unusually heavy opposition, followed by casualties 70% can't hold. And this message was not understanding, understated. Despite the slaughter at Red One, there were indeed Marines still alive. One Marine, one of four survivors from his Amtrak, only four survivors from his Amtrak, decided that enough was enough. 
as he leaned against the seawall and watched his buddies be cut down by machine gun fire, he decided he's going to act. I'm not going to die here. I'm going to die there. And so already bleeding from at least one wound, he jumped up and hurtled the coconut log seawall. His buddies could hear screaming and hollering in both Japanese and English, and then heard a grenade go off, followed by machine gun fire. When the Marines advanced to the spot later, they found this lone grunt cut in half by machine gun fire, but with four dead Japanese, obviously the victims of that grenade, sprawled around him. No one knew his name. He made the ultimate sacrifice. You know, when somebody doesn't know the name of somebody like that because they're blown to smithereens, there's no dog tag to recover, who do you give the Medal of Honor to? In this case, nobody, Seth. Right, yeah, and and these individual acts of self-sacrifice are going to be repeated over and over and over and over again as we go through this event. Um, You know, after what seemed like an eternity, uh, the men of I Company 3rd Battalion, 2nd Marines, begin to advance over the sea. This is at Red One, mind you. Begin to advance over the seawall and pushed inland about 50 yards. Uh, They knocked out some of the anti-boat guns, not all, some of the anti-boat guns that had been waylaying the Amtraks as they were coming in. Um, And yet as they moved inland, I Company became pinned down. So I Company gets about 50 yards inland and 50 yards is not a long way to go. They get about 50 yards inland and they immediately become pinned down by Japanese machine gun fire. Um, Unable to advance or retreat, they just sit there. The, The I Company Marines just sit there. They hold their, they do hold their ground. But it is hours before they are able to be met by advancing Marines later on that day. Um, and this is a small breakthrough, and it's a it's a pinprick in, in the overall defenses here at Beachio. And this is only at one of three landing beaches. The Japanese fire, despite this breakthrough, the Japanese fire is still cutting men down left and right. Uh, one of the first messages, aside from the one that you read, Bill, um, Sent back to Firm Red One stated, boats held up on the reef at Red One, troops receiving heavy fire in the water. And this is, of course, referring to the carnage that is about to occur as the LCVPs are about to land. Because you got to remember, and it's something important to remember, is that what you said, Bill, you know, these landing waves, these these assault waves are only 100, only 100 yards away from one another. And... When that first wave hits the shore, it's only a matter of seconds, really, before that second wave comes, and then that third wave comes, and then the, theoretically the fourth wave would come, which of course is the LCVPs are going to drop their ramps on the beach. So I mean, this is happening really, really fast, really, really fast. Um, Colonel Shoop radio, and he's not even ashore yet; he's still in his LCVP. He radios back to Major Shottle, who is in charge of Red One, or theoretically in charge of Red One. Uh, he tells Shottle to, according to the seventy percent casualty rate that he received in his first message, <clears throat> he tells Shottle to quote, "Land your reserve troops." Shottle reports back to Shoop, quote, "We have nothing left to land." Unquote. And this is just the scene at Red One in a matter of about 30 minutes-ish that this slaughter is taking place at Red One. Now, while the carnage is going, is being, you know, unrolling here at Red One, Red Two isn't any better. 
Um, the Japanese are putting up a withering crossfire as the Marines landing craft are funneled to a couple of pre-registered spots on the beach because of beach obstacles poking just above the water's line. These beach obstacles are like these little concrete tetrahedron things that are designed theoretically to rip the bottoms out of landing craft if they are just beneath the surface. At this point, they're just above the surface, which will tell anybody with a brain that the water is significantly lower in the in the uh, lagoon than it was initially anticipated that it would be. Uh, the Marines there landed between what would be called the pocket. And it, Bill, you, you got to kind of, it's highlighted right around there. Um, and the pier where Hawkins had been early in the morning, where the machine gun crossfire literally cut men down, as I said, left and right. Uh, there's, you know, it's not just Navy. I mean, it's not just Marine Corps uh, people that are landing ashore here at, at Tarawa. There's Navy beachmasters involved in every single amphibious landing made in the war. This is no different, Bill. There's a lieutenant commander named Patrick Grogan. Uh, tell us about him. What's his what's his deal here at Red 2? Yeah, remember, there's a beach master on each of these beaches. And so at Red 2, the guy's name is Grogan, as you said. Um, you know, and they're in charge of, of making sure that the lines of landing forces get ashore, the logistics get ashore, everything flows. So that's their job is to make sure everything flows. But he, he recalled the chaos. It was like being suspended, like being under a strong anesthetic, not asleep, not even in a nightmare, just having everything stop except pain and fear and death. Our voices sounded like the voices of complete strangers, voices we had never heard before. And the men in these Antraks heading to Red 2 fared no better than anyone else. You thought, okay, at least they're not in a bay, right? It's, a, it's kind of a, a straight beach. But of right. course, the fields of fire were established such that there was fire coming from both ends, even though it wasn't a bay. The men that operated the LVT's defensive weapons were killed before they got anywhere near the beach. Japanese machine gun bullets churned the water around the men who were lucky enough to get out to foam. One Marine said the surface of the water looked like rain was falling on it. Dead Marines littered the beaches. And of course, there are some very famous photographs of this that Seth will be showing. But they're literally everywhere. The bodies in some places were stacked four and five high. And while you hear it often in movies, this was reality. The amount of blood that had been spilled actually turned the water near Red 2 Beach red as well. Anyone who moved on the beach was subject to intense fire. Men faked death to survive. Others crawled ahead at an excruciatingly, excruciatingly slow pace. So hopefully they, they appeared dead and, and they wouldn't draw fire. The casualties were so heavy that the LVTs, those that survived, acted as ambulances and withdrew men from the shore back to the ships. However, the Japanese fire was so intense that the 13-millimeter machine guns ashore and the Nambus easily penetrated the LVT's thin armor so that when the LVTs with the wounded went back to sea, many of them sank, looking like Swiss cheese. And so... Seth, this is just not getting better. No, it isn't. And it's only going to get worse. And, you know, we need to we need to pause in the carnage here and just reiterate that what we said last week, these are Marines. It's about 60, 40. 
Uh, and by 60-40, I mean 60%-ish of these Marines that are landing here on Bay Shio are combat veterans. These are guys who had seen action on Guadalcanal. And, you know, the, refer back to some of our Guadalcanal episodes as to what the 2nd Marine Division did on Guadalcanal. They were in the thick of it from literally August 7th until the end, actually after 1st Marine Division left. Regardless of this, these are guys who had seen combat before. The other 40%-ish are new guys, guys who were replaced or were replacements rather that were added to the division in New Zealand. So these are guys who have seen combat. They know what combat is like, and they have never seen anything like this before in their lives. They were, you know, some of the veterans expected it. They didn't, they didn't think it was going to be a cakewalk that everybody said it was going to be, but the vast majority of people did assume it was going to be a cakewalk. So, I mean, they are receiving the shock of their lives. And it's not necessarily that these, that these guys are unprepared or untrained to deal with this. It's just that the Japanese fire is so friggin' intense that nobody had ever faced anything like this before anywhere in the Pacific, much less during an amphibious landing. And that's why Tarawa is so, so, so very important because it informs every single amphibious landing that occurs after it. And I'm talking Europe and Pacific because of the instances, because of the experience, experiences of the 2nd Marine Division here on Basio, it informs everything that comes afterwards. So I, I felt like we needed to pause in the carnage and, and, and insert that that note here, Bill, because this episode specifically, more than any other one we've ever done, is literally it's filled with carnage because that's exactly what the first 24 hours on Beatio were. It, you know, people referred to it at, referred to it as an abattoir. You know, I mean, it was just it was a butcher shop uh, from end to end on every single landing beach, and you know, the situation at Red Two and what could be seen at Red One was serious. And by serious, I mean the Japanese defensive fire was relentless. And anyone who tried to move inland, and I do mean anyone with the exception of that small group of I-Company men, were killed. Colonel Shoup was still not even ashore yet. And when he received his message from the beach that said, quote, meeting heavy resistance, unquote. Again, understatement of the year here. F-Company at Red 2, you're going to hear a lot about F-Company both today and tomorrow and in the next day, um, they did begin to try and push inland. Now, there there are instances up and down, red one, two, and three of Marines just saying, the hell with this. Like you said, Bill, I'm either going to die on this beach or I'm going to die inland. And at least if I die inland, I'm going to try and do something. That's what these guys do here. They try and move inward. Um, there's a break in the seawall, as I said. There, you know, The seawall was basically surrounding the entire island, but there were breaks here and there where the Japanese just hadn't finished completing the, the wall. Uh, trying to expand the beachhead, F Company, uh, F Company received 50% casualties in about 15 minutes. There is a... You know, go ahead, Bill. No, it's just incredible. It's, it defies belief, right? It defies understanding that the Marines continued to push inland uh, you know in the midst of all of this because you know what they're thinking is they're thinking we got to get out of here this is not working this is a failed assault we got to turn around and get out of here the problem was it was just as dangerous to retrograde as it was to push forward they're going to die either way so i think you're you hit you hit it exactly right seth they're thinking well if i'm going to die 
I might as well die doing something. And so here we go. We've got a bunch of guys pinned down. There were several who, despite the fire, emerged and tried to do something. And one of those Marines was Staff Sergeant William Bordelon. The Texas native was an engineer who landed in an LVT amidst the carnage you read too. And of course, all Marines are infantrymen. It doesn't matter whether you're an aviator or an engineer, you're an infantryman. And his LVT, just like most of the rest, was disabled. Bordelon took a handful of survivors from his LVT and moved towards the seawall, grabbing two packs of dynamite that had been brought ashore. Bordelon fashioned four explosive devices for the two bunkers pinning men down. Bordelon stood straight up and faced the two bunkers, lobbing one charge and then the other directly into the bunkers, firing apertures. The resulting explosions wounded Bordelon in the arm. Yet he continued to go forward. After knocking down those two emplacements, Bordelon crawled some distance inland and threw another charge into another position, killing it as well. As he retreated back to his lines to get more of that TNT, he was shot in the same arm <laughs> that he was shot, that he was wounded in previously. As he moved back, he was hit a third time. Reaching his lines again, he grabbed the fourth dynamite charge and attempted to throw it when it went off in his hand. Refusing treatment, he stood up and ran into the surf, pulled an injured Marine ashore before attacking a fourth Japanese position with one of his comrades. Bordelon pulled his wounded man out of the way and went and grabbed a grenade launcher. Attacking again, he was wounded a fourth time this time in the shoulder. And he pulled another wounded man to, to the seawall, finally attacking again. This is Superman here. Yeah. Bordelon again stood up with his grenade launcher this time, and at this time was killed by a machine gun. But before he was killed, he'd knocked out four enemy positions, rescued at least four Marines, and was wounded five separate times before he was killed. Needless to say, Bill Bordelon was, was rewarded the Medal of Honor, Seth. Yeah, this guy is an absolute machine. He is an absolute legend to this day in Marine Corps history. And obviously, we're going to show his picture now. If you look at this guy, I mean, he looks, he is the epitome of United States Marine. I mean, this guy looks like he could eat choose glass for breakfast. And I mean, the, the, his story is there, there's several medal of honors that are, that are awarded for actions here on Basio. This is the first, uh, borderlands action is the first. And this, again, it goes back to what we were just saying a second ago, Bill, that, that, you know, it's individual acts of bravery up and down red one, two, and three are what actually propel this event to an eventual success. The, the, the individual acts of self-sacrifice by guys like Bill Bordelon, not only does it kill Japanese, it saves Marines, and it starts to inspire guys around them. Now, the withering fire that is coming down, and I do mean withering fire, one of the quotes that you read, Bill, said that uh, the fire was so intense that it looked like rain was falling in the water. I mean, that's I don't think that's an understatement. You know, Unfortunately, there's no, that I know of, uh, footage of the Marines pinned down on Basio to where you can see the water's edge, even from Norm Hatch. But I don't think that's an understatement. When you consider the casualties that we're going to spit out here at the end of this episode, you, you'll understand what they were meaning by that. 
but it's the individual acts of bravery that start to inspire the guys around them. Now, these guys, combat veterans or not, you know, they're scared. You know, they're scared to death because they are, they've never seen anything like this before. They've never seen this kind of carnage. They've never received this kind of fire. They are hunkering down up against the seawall. And it's going to take people like Bill Bordelon to inspire the men around them to get up and get things moving. And that is precisely what happens. And we'll come back to Red 2 in just a few minutes. Over at Red 3, the situation was a little bit better, but not a whole hell of a lot. The LVT assault waves had only sustained about 25 casualties. Now, considering what had been uh, laid on the guys at Red 1 and Red 2, this was a cakewalk over here, but it's about to get really bad. Uh, The pier that Bill had mentioned before that we talked about where Hawkins landed initially, it had sheltered a lot of the, it it shielded rather, I'm sorry, it shielded a lot of the withering fire that was being poured in at Red 2 from the guys at Red 3. The guys that were on that pier or near that pier were pouring the fire into Red 2 and not into Red 3 because the pier was actually blocking their field of fire. Um, The Japanese quickly realized, however, that the Marines on Red 3 were not under the same assault and re- under the same assaulting fire and reorganized their defensive fire to place those men under fire. As the fire intensified, uh, Major Jim Crow's XO Major Chamberlain, who we mentioned before, his, this is the nitpicking bookish college professor officer who a lot of guys didn't have a lot of confidence in. And by a lot of guys, I'm talking about the grunts, didn't have a lot of confidence in this XO. Um, they feared he would not be a good combat leader. He's taking shelter right there at the water's edge at the seawall. He says, uh-uh, this ain't going to happen. He stands up and began to go man to man and try and move them forward. Remember what I just said about Bill Bordelon inspiring people by his actions to get up and get going. Good leaders, exemplary leaders like Major Chamberlain, Major Crow, Colonel Shoup, Major Ryan. They're going to do they're going to perform the same type of acts and inspiration by getting their people moving, by acting as an example. Chamberlain fully exposes himself to enemy fire. He's striding up and down the beach in full view of the Japanese, trying to encourage his men. Most men move forward. However, some did not. Uh, Chamberlain screaming, berating, shaming, cussing would finally have to draw his 1911 and threaten to shoot some Marines, if they did not move forward up and over that wall. The situation is starting to spin out of control on all three beaches. And aside from Chamberlain, there is nobody above the rank of major anywhere on any of these beaches. Shoup isn't even ashore yet. He's still in a damn Higgins boat trying to get to shore. However, one man who is about to make a mark is about to land. And of course, that's Jim Crow, Bill. Yeah. And getting back to Chamberlain just for a moment, you know, I can't help but think about another Chamberlain, you know, Gettysburg, Little Round Top, right? Spelled different, right? That Chamberlain spelled different, but also a college professor um, and also somebody who was an exemplary combat leader. And, and I, you know, this Chamberlain, of course, was aware of that Chamberlain. And I can't help but think that maybe he was inspired and thinking that uh, I'm gonna I'm not gonna be the Chamberlain who goes down in history as as the one who chickened out. I'm gonna do some of that kind of Gettysburg stuff here. But yeah, you know the, the other thing I would say about Red Three is is looking at the map again just for a second is is not only we're shielded a little bit by the pier here, but it's also convex where particularly Red One was concave. 
Red two is a straight, red three is convex, and that makes it a little bit more difficult to line those fields of fire, interlocking fields of fire up. But of course, as you said, Seth, the Japanese did adjust. And so they're, they're back and, and they're making things hard again for the Marines. Um, and, and you mentioned this guy named Crow, who I always want to call Crow because of Admiral Crow, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But the, the Crow's Marines had were, were forced to funnel be, uh, ca causing Major Crow, who was riding an L LCVP, headed for shore to shout to Norm Hatch, Jesus Christ, I'm losing my beachhead. The Navy coxswain driving the L LCVP could see the drama unfolding ahead of him and hesitated to continue the drive in. R Crow shouted, coxswain, put this damn boat in. Responding, the coxswain gunned the boat and then hit the reef so hard it threw Crow, Hatch, and everyone else in the boat straight on their ass. Crow and everyone else in the boat jumped over the side and headed for the beach. Remember, they're on this is this is LCVP. Now they're under fire. Normatch, remember Crow running so fast that he outpaced everyone and arrived on the beach just seconds after the last undamaged LVT pulled away. As soon as Crow hit the beach, he took command. And for the majority of the battle, Crow stood straight and tall, just like Chamberlain, but, the, but Crow be, was behind a disabled Amtrak. This is the guy who has that red handle mustache. I think we talked about that last week. Slightly yeah. curved through the fact he had an unlit cigar clenched in his teeth the entire time ashore, all the while cradling his model 1897. Winchester 12-gauge shotgun in his arms. Now, that's an unusual weapon to be carrying ashore for these guys. <laughs> but the man was a tower of strength throughout the ordeal, an inspiration to his men, and he would become one of the most famous men to emerge from this battle, Seth. Yeah. And, you know, to, to get back to that 1897, uh, you know, of course, this is the famous trench gun. Uh, this is a Model 1897 12-gauge pump that's got an 18 and a half inch barrel with a with a barrel shield on it. I mean, this is a, this is a fearsome, fearsome weapon. But if you look inside, it's kind of hard to see in the footage, but you got to really zoom in to see it. But you can see him. He's cradling it like a like a duck gun. You know, he's just holding this thing. Eventually, he does wind up putting it down because he's literally, you know, doing this kind of thing all day long, moving, moving people around with his hands. But uh, Crow is he never leaves the back end of that Amtrak. And it's not because he's, you know, hiding or anything. He is directing traffic. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's there to take command and move people around. And he is doing his job uh, to what you were saying. Norm Hatch uh, said that he outran him. He said, when Hatch jumped over the side, he has all his camera equipment. Okay. And when he gets over mm -hmm. the side of the LCVP, he's, you know, holding his camera above his head because he doesn't want it to get wet for obvious reasons. And as he's starting to turn around and walk towards shore, Crow, he sees Crow just book it and he is gone. And Crow is running so fast that literally nobody can keep up with him. He is just cruising to get to that shore because he's afraid. What he did not know is that Chamberlain had actually issued orders for his Marines to move to the right. Crow had no idea. He didn't know this. All he sees is his Marines funneling off that beach. And that's what leads him to exclaim, I'm losing my beachhead because he thought that his, his Marines were were leaving. We're, we're leaving the beachhead and they were actually being funneled because of Chamberlain's orders. Um, 
as Crow re- as Crow landed, he realized pretty quickly that his XO Chamberlain had begun to organize the men and form an advance. That's what I was saying here. Uh, Chamberlain, in full view of Crow and the Japanese, simply walked around exposed to the fire as if it didn't exist. Uh, once he got the men shepherded towards the seawall, he took a brief break and complained, "Quote, damn it, I forgot my cigars." So <laughs> he knew he'd have to uh, he'd have to be without a cigar until he bummed one off a of major Crow. Um, at all three landing beaches, the Marines clung to a small spit of beach and took refuge behind Basio's seawall. Now, there were some initial penetrations, but they were only about 50 yards inland and only really in two spots. Um, the first waves had first waves had suffered enormous casualties, some as high as 75 percent. Yet they held, and in some spots they even advanced, as I was saying. When they did so, the Japanese would often emerge from their post to engage in hand-to-hand combat. Uh, The fighting was close. It was visceral. It was violent. We're talking knives, bayonets, fists, you know, gouging each other's eyes out. I mean, this is combat in its most primal form. Uh, When one Marine was killed, another rose to take his place. The Marines never seemed to stop coming. Few Japanese survivors lived through this event and that was one thing that they all consistently said is that no matter how many marines that they killed another one popped up to take his place the men on the uh beach that were that had survived the carnage of the lvt landings uh were about to witness something almost unbelievable as we just said crow landed in an lcvp well there's six more waves of lcvps coming behind the first or what would be the fourth wave uh the the slaughter in the water the massacre in the water that's about to unfold is going to be something that literally shook men to their cores who were both ashore and in the water bill this is some bad bad stuff yeah these marines and corpsmen in the higgins boats had been in their craft for hours i mean some of them five hours so you know watching all of this unfold you, you don't know whether they you know, some of them were so seasick and stuff like that. They just wanted all the and and they found themselves under fire. All they wanted to do was get out of the boat, right? Thinking that maybe I could survive as an individual. But if they'd known what was gonna uh, what was gonna in store for them, they would have wanted to stay in these boats. There was a correspondent by the name of Robert Sherrod who watched from his LVCB, LCVP and noticed that something was wrong among the first few waves. He said the first waves were not hitting the beach as they should. They were very, there were very few boats on the beach. There were no Higgins boats on the beach as there should have been at this point in the, in the battle. Realizing that the reason the Higgins boats weren't ashore was because of the low tide, Sherrod said this was indeed chilling news. While it may have been chilling to, news to Sherrod, it wasn't a surprise to the Marines. They were fully aware of the fact that that they were going to they might have to wade in they knew this even before they you know actually started hitting this reef as the first lcvps deposited their men at the reef the japanese didn't seem to notice them the enemy soldiers continued to fire at the lvts as they made their way ashore or retreated from ashore then apparently the japanese gunners could make out the forms of med plodding through the water some 700 yards away from the beach. And I do want to go back to the map here, because as we said a few times, at the widest point, this this island, Basio, is only about 800 yards wide. So you extend that another 800 yards, 
it's from this line here that the reef is, where the men are starting to have to wade all the way. They're having to wade as far as the island is wide. That's the incredible part here. And the Japanese machine gun fire, of course, intensified, ripping into the men as they waded ashore as they got closer to the beach. Marines instinctively went to ground, as it were, went to ocean, squishing themselves underwater as close to the surface as possible, and only their helmets and weapons visible above the waterline, Seth. Yeah, guys who were ashore who were watching this said the Marines looked like turtles because all they could see were helmets and rifles. But even that didn't stop uh, the, the carnage from being inflicted on these people as they're getting ashore. Um, one of the Marines waiting ashore is finally, that's not his fault, but it's finally Colonel David Monroe Shoup. He wasn't supposed to land in the first assault waves. He's the commander. He's the boss for the landing here once they get ashore. They did not want the CEO getting killed in the first few waves. So he actually comes away, uh, comes ashore in the fifth wave. Um, the Japanese fire was intense. And the Marines all around Shoop are dropping like flies. At one point, Shoop runs into a group of Marines who clearly had had enough. Uh, they told him, quote, we can't get in. We're going back to the ship, unquote. Wrong thing to tell Colonel David Monroe Shoop. He replies, quote, like hell you are. Pick up weapons from the dead and get your sorry asses in there now. And they did. <laughs> they, they listened to Colonel Shoop. Where the hell are you going to go? You know, mm -hmm. and, and you can understand their reason for wanting to get the hell out of there. But where are you going to go? You're not going to you're not getting back aboard a Higgins boat. You're going to you're going to hang out on the reef all day. They're going to pick you off anyway. So to Colonel Shoup's point, get your ass ashore and do something. Don't just sit here and be a target. Um, Shoup makes his way to shore and was astounded at what he saw. Now, he's receiving radio communication from the beach, albeit intermittently. But he is receiving radio communication. So he knows the situation is not what it was what he hoped it would be but he had no clue that it was as bad as it was until he gets ashore dead marines lay around him literally everywhere it seemed that those that weren't dead were wounded so i mean there are guys that are hit or dead all around the man his marines clung to the seawall before him and only a scant few had made their way inland he estimated shoop estimates at this point that the beachhead at red 2 at that time was only 20 feet deep from the water's edge this is the fifth wave that is landing on Batio and at red 2 colonel shoop the commanding officer for this landing right now estimates that his beachhead is 20 feet deep let that sink in for a minute the, the mm -hmm. japanese controlled everything else and this is the fifth wave of american troops Hitting the shore. Bill, this is going down the drain fast. It is, you know, and, and people think of Normandy. Normandy was a massive scale attack, right? And, and it deserves all of the reverence that we give it. But man for man, this is way worse than Normandy. And people need to understand Agreed. that. And, Agreed. and, you know, this is, um, you, you know, of course, in, in the context of the day, we're still in 1943 here, Normandy, June 44. So, so this we're, we got a long way to go to more Normandy. But, but again, this is a reference that that, um, that you need to keep things in context. I think. And be, now, back behind Shoop was Sherrod, 
still making his way ashore. This is the you know reporter Sherrod's description of the way ashore is typical of those who were able to survive the harrowing ordeal up to this point. He says the instinct to flee in the opposite direction was strong. The only reason I didn't was because I would be embarrassed. I would look like a damn fool. Everyone else going to the beach. The only way we went was forward or down. The water was red. The bodies were everywhere. It was painfully slow, wading in such deep water. And we had 700 yards to walk slowly into that machine gun fire, looming into larger targets as we rose onto higher ground. I was scared as I had never been scared before. Or I would propose as he or as he was never scared since. And over at Red 3, the men huddling against the seawall watched as their comrades tried to slosh their way ashore through the beehive of machine gun fire. The fire was literally coming from everywhere. Men were dropping like flies. And Higgins' boats filled with the dead men with, with, drifted into Basio's lagoon. The men ashore called, witnessing their buddies be shot down, a tragic sight. There wasn't much they could do. For any moment, was met with furious defensive fire. And the only way to suppress that fire was to drive inland, which at this point was nearly impossible, Seth. Right. And, you know, when when you said that the LC, that there were LCVPs filled with dead men waiting or drifting in the lagoon uh that's actually that that was that was my my mistake they were drifting just short of the lagoon because they couldn't get in the lagoon but the thing was um you know there's a scene in saving private ryan that everybody knows what i'm talking about because i'm sure everybody's seen it it's from the german perspective of when an lcvp drops its ramp and mg42 opens up and kills every single guy in the boat that's what's happening here. Uh, you know, it, once the Japanese machine gunners, specifically the guys with the 13 millimeter machine guns, these are large caliber weapons. They have a significantly longer range and, and they're more accurate to a longer range than even the 7.7 Nambus. Once these guys draw a bead and they're starting to get that range on these Higgins boats as they're dropping their ramps, they literally are doing the same thing. They're killing every single guy aboard that boat, including the Navy coxswains. That's why these boats are literally drifting out into the water filled with dead men and that that, i mean you can imagine the horror as these things are drifting back to the american fleet which some of them do make their way back to the fleet filled with dead people this is carnage on a scale never never before seen at this point by americans in world war ii um there's a gentleman that we're going to refer to him not only in this episode but in the in the next episode too named pfc robert mulbach uh, Mulbach is in 2-8. He's waiting ashore at Red 3, having run or waited the gauntlet. Uh, as he neared the beach, he sees two Japanese near the pier, fires from the hip, and drops the Japanese as he's waiting to the beach. Um, he says, quote, there were guts of your comrades everywhere. Those big Jap guns were taken off their heads. I saw that happen. The water was a dark crimson, unquote. That Despite the carnage, though, Bill, and the obvious threat of death, the Marines still came ashore. This is what I was saying just a minute ago, is that the Japanese, for all the guys that they killed, kept saying that guys just kept coming. They just kept coming. Um, 
Major Ryan over at Red Beach One, we talked about him earlier. He said, and I quote, I saw men leave the boats without hesitation. The courage of these young men, many of them not out of their teens, is still a source of pride to me. These were not fanatical or seasoned troops, but ordinary young people faced with an unimagined horror, determined not to let their fellow Marines down, unquote. This is what it's all about. You know, Bill, we've said many, many times before that, you know, infantrymen don't fight for mom and apple pie. They're not fighting for the red, white, and blue. They're fighting for this guy and this guy on either side of them. And that's exactly what's happening here. Marines don't give a rat's ass about taking Basio. They don't care about taking that airfield. The only thing they care about is not letting their men, their buddies down. And that is exactly what propels people to do the things that they do, to do the things that Bill Bordelon did, to do the things that Hawkins is going to do tomorrow and that Bonnieman's going to do on the next day and countless other guys do all over Basio that never get recorded. It's that fact that I'm not going to let my buddies down. I'm going to get in there because I'm a Marine and I'm going to do what I need to do to get this job done. That's what wins this day, Bill. Yeah. And it's been said so many times, where do we get such men? And boy, that expression never meant more than it means this day on some tiny, you know, strip of land called Basio. It's just um, you know, the, the, the airfield there, you know, the, the people had to ask themselves at this point in this battle, is it really worth it? And it would become worth it over time. And, you know, and, and I hate to do mathematics, but the mathematics of the battle is that this, you know, the aircraft that operate from this and the aircraft that are no longer operating from this airfield because we take it are going to save more than the number of lives lost and it's a it's a cruel arithmetic that you have to impose on these battles to make them make sense but if you don't do that then you go crazy you know you have to let the facts overtake the emotion otherwise there's no way you can survive mentally the kinds of things that are happening this day because at this stage in the battle the marine corps is being beat soundly. Yes. Many leaders had fallen dead on the beach or in the water, and the beachhead was too small to hold the incoming waves of men. Someone had to move and get inland. Fortunately, men like Crow, Shoop, and others would do that very thing, Seth. Yep. And that's that's the only way this thing is going to end. That's the only way this carnage on the beach is going to end is by pushing inland and killing these people one by one and that's exactly what starts to happen here. This is shortly after lunch ish, you know. I say lunch, like the Marines had time to eat lunch, right? You know, but it's it's around 1200, 1300 that movement actually does start to be seen. That the Marines on the beach are like, we can't do this anymore because the beach is small. As I said, uh, mm -hmm. Shoop estimated that the beachhead that he was holding, that his that his Marines at Red Two were holding, was only twenty feet deep, and there's men still coming. They got to go somewhere and they can't just continue to pile on the seawall because they're all going to die. So over at Red One, Major Ryan, uh, we talked about him earlier. He assumed command due to the lack of anyone else above him present. His CO was a guy named Major Shottle who was at the reef and could not get ashore. And there's controversy surrounding Major Shottle, and I'm not going to get into that now. People say maybe it was cowardice. Other people say that it was circumstance. It doesn't matter. He wasn't there. 
Major Ryan was, and that's who we're going to focus on right now. Um, he knew that getting the Japanese out of their pillboxes and their emplacements and their coconut log bunkers was going to be a tough task, but it absolutely had to be done. He had to do something. Uh, the combat would be close, hand-to-hand, -hand, and bloody knife-wielding, bayonet-thrusting combat. Um, Molbach, Robert Molbach uh, of 2-8 at Red 3 describes the actions of pulling these people out of their pillboxes. Quote, I would approach a pillbox. This is how primal the fighting was on Batio. I would approach a pillbox, determine its field of fire, and someone, sometimes it was me, would stand up to draw fire. Then you would throw in a grenade. As soon as it went off, you would jump in the pillbox and kill whoever was in there. Usually they had two guys in there. The grenade might get both of them, but usually only killed or wounded one. You would get in there, and it was hand-to-hand -hand almost every single time. I repeated that over and over for three days, unquote. Larger positions. Now, these are individual. The, the positions that Mobach is talking about are individual positions, you know, the smaller firing embracers, spider holes, things like that. But the larger positions, of which Basio had many, required explosives. Uh, satchel charges, dynamite, or if they could get them, flamethrowers did the trick. And there were flamethrowers at Batio, but these are coming in the later waves. At this point in time, most of the flamethrowers that you see in later footage that Norm had shot, specifically at Red 3, just ain't there yet. They're not on shore yet. Um, Major Ryan stoically led the charge over at Red 1. Um, he gathered men around him in ragtag units. Whoever survived the gauntlet were formed an ad hoc squad to kill the Japanese. So at this point, Bill, there isn't very much organization because some units have been almost wiped out to a man. I mean, you've got, you know, of companies mm -hmm. of a hundred and some odd people, you might have a dozen survivors, maybe if you're lucky. And of, among yeah. those survivors are maybe four or five of those guys wounded. So Ryan is literally grabbing. If you're breathing and you can move, you're, Here's a squad, here's a squad, here's a squad, here's a platoon, move, get inland. And that's exactly yep. what he's doing. And that's what's going on all over the place. It's a pickup game. And, you know, who's in charge? You know, is, there, is there a corporal, you know, who survived? And so you're yeah. making you know, random squad leaders. They haven't trained together. This, this, you know, this becomes very complicated. They don't know each other, um, you know, in, in many cases. And so they're having to form units and, and ad hoc. Um, decide, you know, how they're going to operate, how they're going to maneuver, fire and maneuver, fire and maneuver uh, when you with guys you've never maybe, you know, you barely know. So but that's the way if it's you going. knew them at all. <laughs> yeah, we're exactly right. But yeah. Ryan did have one advantage, though. He had two Sherman. There were two Sherman tanks in his sector and he used them well. The Shermans would draw you know, because come ashore with the LVTs. They would draw close to the bunkers, point blank, blast them with their main guns. The Marines would then run and kill and bayonet anyone alive or dead. You, you don't want to leave people that you think are dead that they're really alive. So they're going to bayonet anyone alive or dead in the bunker. And it's around this time, 1050, so it's not quite noon yet, that the radios begin to work ashore. Many had become wet on the way in, and they're now drying out. Uh, so Ryan is na now hears from CO is Major Shottle, who is still offshore. He asked if he could provide air support. Major Shottle asks it, Ryan, can you provide air support? Ryan had seen what air, air support did earlier when it strafed his own line, said, negative. We do not require air support. He had not been able to mark his own front lines, which the pilots need to know where the bad guys are, where to shoot and where not to shoot. 
15 minutes later, Shadal again asks if he wants, if he's if he can send air support. Ryan again responds, do not want air support. Ignoring Ryan's response, Shadal sends in air support, which due to the fact that Ryan is not being able to mark his lines because he's under intense fire, allows the American aircraft to strafe their own men again. Furious, Ryan sends out another message. Stop the strafing. You're hitting our own men. Finally, five minutes later, the absent CEO halted the air attack on his own men. Death. Yeah. 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 And, you know, again, we're not going to get into Major Shuttle, but this is one example of, you know, his poor leadership. I'm not really sure what his motivations were to send that air support in there, but we talked about last time, Bill. We talked about in the last episode that there were many episodes in this particular episode that too many words episode there that mm-hmm. the Marines did not want air support because again, referring to the size of ratio, two miles long, 800 and some odd yards wide. It's too damn small really to provide air support, which as we have said many times in many other episodes is a very uh, difficult task to perform in the first place, much Accurately. less when you, yeah, yeah. Much less when you can't mark your front lines because you literally, if you stand up and try and do it, you're going to get killed. Or because the island's so damn small, you're going to end up hitting your own people anyway. However, the yeah. one thing they, that, they, yeah, go ahead. they couldn't pop smoke back then, Seth, right? Well, <laughs> they, I don't think they wanted to draw any attention to themselves any more <laughs> than they already were. <laughs> exactly. You know, it was, yeah, and they, it was just, it was not a good situation to be involved in at this point. However, again, this goes back to what we'd initially said across the beachheads, Marines who were sick and tired of the carnage got up and started pushing in and with or without orders from superior officers, officers, men around them joined in and slowly, ever so slowly, the lines began to move forward by mid afternoon. The lines at Red One penetrated 500 yards inland and ran about 150 yards across. So this is a significant advance over on Red One. Again, considering the size of the place, a 500-yard inland push is pretty damn good considering what you've survived through Mm -hmm. at this point. Now, granted, it's only 150 yards wide, so it's kind of like sticking a thumb on there. But, I mean, it is what it is. It's better than nothing. Over at Red Two the aforementioned F company that we talked about here before uh, under the command of uh, executive officer, Lieutenant Wayne Sanford pushed up and over the seawall and advanced towards the airstrip. They literally get up. Sanford orders this charge. They get up and they run in a full sprint across Basio. They move so fast that it takes the Japanese by surprise. The Japanese don't, I mean, they do take them under fire, but their fire is inaccurate because of Sanford's just get up and just go and everybody just goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, it's, they're just hauling ass and, and they wind up capturing part of the airfield. Um, it is as the, as the Marines are running across this section of the Island, while they're not necessarily taking the heavy machine gun fire from both sides, they're running into Japanese positions. And then of course it devolves into hand to hand fighting, bayonet fighting, uh, you know, it's again, combat in its most primal form uh the marines of f company had to knock the japanese out of each individual hole and emplacement by the end of the day f company represented the deepest penetration of the marines on basio some 650 to 700 yards inland forming a sort of semicircle near the intersection of the airfield you look at the if you look at a map of the airfield you see it's it's triangulated you know 
And right there at that point of the triangle is where F Company's deepest penetration was at that point. You can see the American line had actually bulged significantly later on through the day. But this is where F Company, led by Wayne Lieutenant Sanford, pushes through. They make the farthest advance at that time. If you recall, when we were talking about the initial assault, and, and, and or actually just before that, there were two destroyers in the lagoon. And I do mean in the lagoon, USS Ringold and USS Dashiell. They never leave that lagoon. Well, I mean, they do at one point get out of there to go replenish. But there's always at least one of those destroyers in that lagoon providing call fire support to the Marines. We talked about the air support and what a cluster that was, that the Marines only wanted naval gunfire support. They can't, they haven't gotten their artillery ashore yet, let alone, you know, they can barely get infantry ashore. However, these two destroyers specifically, Ringold and Dashiell, provide call fire all day long and into the night. But there's one specific episode that is enormous. And we talked about these destroyers earlier providing fire support, and there's and, and they come to play a huge role in the battle. This happens right now, Bill. What what goes on? This is about 1400 or, or 1430 or something like that. What what what's going on right now? Yeah. And keep in mind that naval gunfire support and support of Marine troops and contact uh, evolves over the course of the war. Later, if jumping ahead to Iwo just for a second, every, you know, every battalion is going to have a destroyer, every regiment is going to have a cruiser, and every division is going to have a battleship so providing naval guns of fire support. At this, you know, at Basio, it wasn't quite that sophisticated yet, but there were these two destroyers, and the reason the Marines liked them over the aircraft is they had some ability to call in coordinates for the naval gunfire strikes, whereas the airplanes, they really had no idea where the heck those airplanes were going to strike, right? So, yeah, at this point, the Marines begin to move forward. They decide um, the, the admiral in charge of the Japanese defense here, remember, these are sailors, not soldiers, Defending Beishio, um, Admiral um, Shib Shibakaz Shibazaki Shibazaki. I keep getting this wrong, but Admiral Shibazaki decides he needs to move his HQ. Um, his original command post was really was nearly at the center of the island, in, in kind of in line with Red Two, and it was extremely close to this point of penetration. That F Company has ex executed. So while the naval bombardment had not done what was expected to the Japanese defenses prior to the landings, what it did do was destroy their ability to communicate. It, you know, generally using wires um, that are strung between observation posts, command posts, and things like that, and turning all that ground up with that huge pre-landing bombardment destroyed a lot of these wires. Yeah. And so the Japanese could, command post couldn't communicate with many of its subordinate command posts and things like that. So um, Shibazaki decides he's going to be, um, he's using runners all day. And oftentimes these runners, as they're running to one from one command post to the other, get shot. So that's not being that's not very efficient. He decides he knew needs to move the CP and to a place where he could communicate better. And um, you know, therefore he um 
decides to do it kind of on the spur of the moment. And he's got a concrete blockhouse that he that has been his command post. And he's going to go with essentially without an escort. But in the end, it didn't matter anyway, because he's going to try to move fast. And these two destroyers, Ringgold and Dashiell, as Seth said, never left their post in the lagoon. They've been firing um, for calls for fire constantly since the first men arrived on shore. Their accurate gunfire was really the only artillery error otherwise the men could rely on. Colonel Shoup on the horn with both ships is calling in fire on a persistent Japanese field gun in the area of Shibazaki's blockhouse. It was a bad idea to put a field gun near your command post, I guess, because the field gun becomes a target, which causes you know, target, shells to fall in the vicinity of the command post. And Dashiell unloads on this gun position, unearthing a, a bunch of Japanese, according to Shu, whose men, cut, uh, whose men cut the fleeing enemy soldiers down. Almost out of ammo, Dashiell turns the call mission over to Ringgold, who at 1516 commenced firing on the eastern edge of 214, the area that was stated to be full of Japanese surrounding this gun. And Seth, what happens then? Ringgold drops three three five-inch salvos, just everything she's got, boom, 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 uh, of airburst ammunition. So... She knows that she's firing at what is thought to be a cluster of Japanese uh, infantry and or, or sailors, as the case is. Um, so she's firing airburst ammunition, which if you have no idea what airburst ammunition is, it, it is what it says. It bursts in the air and sends shrapnel screaming downwards. And it's a man killer. It's, it's not going to blow big holes in the ground. It's designed to kill people in mass. And that's exactly what it does here. Um, it was apparently... And this was completely uncoordinated that apparently at this time, when this salvo goes off with this airburst ammunition, this is the exact same time that Shibazaki and his staff decide to move out of that concrete blockhouse and move to another command post on another part of the island. They literally run underneath this shell fire. They have no idea it's coming. The sailors aboard Ringold have no idea that Shibazaki's moving. It's an incredibly fortunate shot, as it as it will prove to be. Uh, the airbursts explode directly over Shibazaki and his staff, and it eviscerates them immediately, kills them all. Now, and this is the important part here, Bill, now bereft of their commanding officer, the Japanese are leaderless. They already don't have any communications. They cannot communicate from position to position without sending somebody out who more than likely is going to get shot. They now have no commanding officer, none. Um, what was worse for them is that they didn't even know. Due to their lack of communications, they had no idea that Shibazaki was moving. They had no idea that Shibazaki was dead. For all they knew, Shibazaki was holed up in his initial command post, which is the concrete blockhouse that you'll hear about again tomorrow and tomorrow's action. Um, and by tomorrow, I don't mean we're going to air another episode tomorrow, to be clear. It's actually next week, but tomorrow in the historical timeline. Um, they just they assumed that Shibazaki was still there. And they were going to, you know, would be the, the fact that Shibazaki is killed in this airburst from fired from Ringold is going to have dire consequences for the Japanese and will actually prove to be a saving grace for the Marines on this very night, Bill. 
as the day is starting to draw to a merciful end, you know, and the fighting has gone on literally since the first Marine put his foot ashore and has not stopped. And, and you know, in some battles, you know, even at like Teneru River and Edson's Ridge, there are lulls in the fighting. You know, it'll be hell on earth for 15, 20 minutes, maybe a little bit longer than that. And there's a lull and then it'll pick up again. There was no low on Tarawa. It was all day. It was balls to the wall from the get-go until nightfall. The Marines are starting to tie yeah. in, aren't they, Bill? Yeah, they are. And remember, we saw we talked about Murphy's Law hurting the Americans. And, and this is one point where the exact worst thing happens at exactly the wrong time for the Japanese. So Murphy's Law was playing a hand in the Japanese side, too. And you, and you think, how did the Japanese not know that they're that their commander was dead. Well, you know, if you had normal communications, you would do these periodic radio checks to make sure the communications line were affected. The Japanese knew that their communications lines were torn up and that Shibazaki was using these runners to communicate. So they assumed if he had something to say, if he had an order to give, a runner would show up. So the lack of a runner showing up merely meant the commander must not have anything for us, have any orders for us. So the absence of communications wasn't noteworthy. Again, Murphy's law um, in this point. Yes. Yeah, so at Red Three, Major Crow was still on the beach. His men had run into blockhouses and concrete positions. They simply could not push through. He stayed on the beach all day directing traffic, naval gunnery, and barking orders at his men around him. Crow stood in full view of the Japanese, chomping on that cigar. The cigar had to be ripe by this point in the battle, <laughs> oblivious to the fire that was coming at him. Snipers killed five men near him in rapid succession, yet he never moved or ducked down. Organizing the attack, his overpowering voice could be heard above the gunfire yelling at Marines to get off your ass and get over that goddamn seawall. You can, like a you know, sergeant major voice here, or a gunny's voice. You don't expect a CO to have a voice like that, but this one does. His yeah. face was in a perpetual scowl, and it frightened the Marines around him more than the enemy gunfire did. Norm Hatch later said that Crow, Crow walked along the seawall, encouraging the men encouraging with his foot sometimes <laughs> the men in full view of the Japanese. Never once did he hit the deck or flinch, even when the fire was heaviest. Nine times out of ten, he didn't even have a helmet on, holding the shotgun in one hand, yelling, look at the sons of bitches can't hit me. Why do you think they can hit you? Get moving. Go. That this was one <laughs> of a Marine leader. He's a bad dude. He, he was a bad, bad man. Um, but a, ahead of him is the college professor that we talked about. And, and I keep hitting on this because not that I'm fond of college professors or anything like that, but this guy doesn't get enough credit. You know, we talk about Jim Crow. We've talked about Major Ryan. We talk about Colonel Shoup, and we're going to continue to do so as the days unfold on, on Basio. Chamberlain does not get enough credit. And we're going to, when we get into day three, in our next episode, you know, there's a very famous action by Alexander Bonnyman that results in Bonnyman being awarded the Medal of Honor. You know, spoiler alert, as you say, it's Chamberlain that leads that assault. 
It's not Bonnieman, it's Chamberlain. Bonnieman's there, of course, but it's Chamberlain that leads that assault. The man doesn't get enough credit, and we're I'm trying to pour the credit on him. Obviously, he's gone. Maybe one of his family members will listen to this who never knew about their their ancestor, but uh the man was he was he was certainly one of the heroes of Basio. Um He's leading the fighting ahead at Red Three, ahead of Major Crow at Red Three. Uh, he jumps up and flies over that seawall, uh, grabbing anyone he could find. He pushed ahead inch by inch until his lines tied in with those at Red Two, helping to form a somewhat secure front line between the two beaches. And this is important, Bill, because up to mm-hmm. this point, until Chamberlain does this, each individual landing beach is kind of like a, like like a set of fingers on the beach they have not connected yet until this point red two and red three are now one contiguous beachhead red one is still way the hell over here separated by 600 yards of japanese controlled territory which is obviously a bad situation for the guys over red one but red two and red three are now united in one somewhat Mm -hmm. deep beachhead here at this point Mm. Chamberlain at this point is grazed by a Japanese sniper on the shoulder. Um, he lets the corpsman put a patch on his wound, but and the corpsman says, you know, we need to get you out of here. Let's get you back to the ship. He says he refuses evacuation by saying, quote, I've got shit to do. I'm fine. Unquote. <laughs> so, again, the guy doesn't get the credit that he deserves. So as night is approaching now, Bill. The Marines do what Marines do at night. They're setting up the perimeter. Crow sets up his perimeter, which now extends about 150 yards inland on the Red 3 side. It's now tied in with Red 2, as we said, that is extended, what, about 600 yards, 650 yards, we said. Um, mm. Shoop, however, is still – remember the communications issue we had earlier in the day aboard Maryland. Julian Smith, he is not getting any communication from the beach at all. He doesn't know what the heck is going on. I mean, he obviously can see that, you know, the fighting is going on and that it's somewhat successful, but he has not heard any definitive information at all from the beach. Shoop enlists the assistance of a guy we've talked about before here, doesn't he, Bill? Yeah, a guy who we, we gave a bit of a hard time to over the making landings. So... Yeah, this guy's name is obviously Evans Carlson. And here is a colonel, right? He's he's a colonel. So Shoup says, I need a volunteer to go back to the ship and explain the situation to the general. And Colonel Carlson volunteers, volunteers to go back to the ship. Now, that's kind of, I've always scratched my head over that. Um, You would think that senior Marine leadership, senior ground combat infantryman leadership could be useful ashore. But anyway, Colonel Carlson, Volunteers, Shoop takes him up on his offer and says, go tell the general uh, and the admiral that we're going to stick and fight it out. So Carlson goes back to the, to the ship and he tells Smith, we're going to they're going to stick and fight it out. And Smith takes absolutely the wrong message from that message yeah. relayed. And he says, they've done it. And Carlson tells him, I, I would wait, sir. The line isn't that strong, and they are, they, the Japanese, are sure to counterattack tonight. So Carlson was a good infantry leader, even though we gave him a hard time. And he did understand what the Japanese might do, and he was exactly, you know, he was exactly right that that's what they would have done. Correct. I'm I'm going to leave it there. So Shoup 
was aware that the counterattack was more, more than likely coming, desperately needing supplies of ammunition, water, and medicine. He instructed all of his men up and down the beach to retrieve the needed supplies from the hundreds of dead men surrounding those who were living. And there was general concern, and rightfully so, as to whether or not the Marines could withstand a counterattack at night. The beachhead was very weak and was not fully connected between Red 2 and Red 1. We said it was kind of connected between Red 2 and Red 3. The men were exhausted. Many were wounded. If the Japanese counterattacked, they were likely to put at least some of the Marines back into the sea. That's if they counterattacked, Seth. Yeah. Right? Right. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, to to your point, I mean, you know, when you got a beachhead that at some points are 650 yards, 600 plus yards inland, that's a good, fairly substantial area. But when you got specifically at Red One, when you've advanced only a, you know, what what do we say? You know, a couple hundred yards inland. I forget the exact mm-hmm. number, but it's not damn far. And, and and you're 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 looking at you know, a couple of thousand Japanese who are still very much alive and kicking, that they are sure to launch this counterattack. And this is what's so important. And I, and and you know we we, we want to hit on this is that if Shibazaki's alive, it is almost universally thought that he would have most certainly ordered a night counterattack. A, a human wave bonsai attack. It's almost 100% certainty that if Shibazaki is alive, he is going to organize and he can communicate. He's going to organize his people into a night counterattack and they are going to assault the Marines someplace. I doubt they'd hit the entire beach, but they're going to hit someplace. And they're very likely, as you said, Bill, to push these Marines back into the sea at some point. We'll get into that more in next week's episode when we talk about days two and three. But I mean, this is a very, very real threat, and this is something that the Marines, specifically Colonel Shoup and Crow and Chamberlain and Major Ryan, are fully aware of, that their hold on Basio is tenuous at best, at best. And then if the Japanese do decide to come at them, there is no, you know, nothing set in stone that they're going to hold this line. Now, Mm -hmm. as we said they more than likely would have counterattacked if Shibazaki is alive. But of course, Shibazaki is not alive. Shibazaki is very much dead, thanks to the USS Ringold. But the Japanese do not know that. So the Japanese, because to what you just said just a couple minutes ago, Bill, they're not receiving any orders. So they assume that what they're doing currently is what they're supposed to do, which is hold your position, fight to the death, don't get out of that position. That is exactly what they do or don't do, as the case may be. They don't launch a massive counterattack at night. They do send infiltrators at night, though, Bill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and again, this battle could have gone very, very differently if Shibazaki was still alive. So the infiltrators, you know, kind of try to penetrate the American lines. But for the most part, they're killed to a man. The night is being illuminated by the ghostly glow of star shells fired by these destroyers that are still offshore. As night passes in the morning, the Marines are still holding their position by, you know, some miracle. And, and I'm not sure they believe they could believe their luck in that that, that counterattack that they absolutely expected didn't manifest. The correspondent Richard Johnston classified the first day at Basio as 
what we had won in a day of dreadful carnage, heroic endeavor, and selfless sacrifice was less than one-tenth of a square mile of stinking coral blown to useless bits and stained with great drafts of American blood. You know, Nimitz said about Iwo Jima that uncommon valor was a common virtue. Man, it is doubly true here, Seth. Very much so. Very much so. It really is. I mean, anybody who walked, waited, ran ashore at Basio stands in very high regard in my mind. And I knew I knew a great many of them. And these guys literally ran the gauntlet. And it ain't over. I mean, it's far from over. Of the 5,000 Marines that land on Basio on the first day, on D-Day, 1,500 were dead, wounded, or missing by nightfall. A 600-yard gap separated Red 2 and Ryan's men at Red 1. The line was anything but secure. But what you said, Bill, thanks to the Japanese not counterattacking, they were able to hold. The Marines would face another 52 hours, plus or minus, of combat on Basio. But for now, the first day had passed, and at this point, the Marines were here to stay, Bill. This is this is going to be about the end of it here for the first day. This is carnage, and I know we've said it all through this episode, but it's it's important to note that this is something that had never been seen, not just by Marines, but by United States eyes. And we'll get to the importance mm-hmm. of you know the footage that Norm Hatch took here in just a few, you know in next week's episode, but. Nobody had seen anything like this that wore an American uniform. Nobody had ever seen combat like this. And this was the first 24 hours. And they knew that that despite the gains they had made, their gains were minimal and they had a hell of a lot more fighting to go. So God knows what the next two days are going to hold, Bill. Yeah. And again, I want to underscore you said that wore an American uniform. I think that's exactly right. There's, you know, obviously there's a similar carnage uh, that the Chinese suffered at the hands of the Japanese. and. You know things like that, so, but but we, for, for the Americans, this was kind of a, a a very rude awakening, and as you said, it was not over yet. No, no, and I I, th- I think we've we could we could continue to sit here and talk for another two hours about the individual acts of heroism on day one alone, mm-hmm. but I kind of think we've run our course on this one. Bill, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap this sucker up? No, I mean, this is day one, folks. We got you got a couple more episodes to 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 you know explore this um this, this horrible tragedy that befell uh, brave Marines and sailors that you know in the Tarawa campaign. In fact, you know, we at the academy we always referred to it as terrible Tarawa. Yep. And it certainly, certainly was. So with that, Bill, we want to thank you very much for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We certainly do appreciate it. Uh, If you want to see a video version of this or any of our other episodes, please subscribe to our YouTube channel called the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. If you want to send us a question or an email, send it to unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. We will pick this story up again next week and we'll talk about day two and three 
on bloody Batio, terrible Tarawa, as it were. So once again, uh, I am Seth Parrott, and I want to say thank you very much for watching and or listening, Bill. And I'm Bill Toady. See you again next week.